Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 22. The girls glare expectantly at Ione the instant Keltham leaves the room. Ione is now trying to think very fast. So, they obviously haven't been told. Which, earlier, Ione thought in the back of her mind would happen as soon as the security wizard walked out after gouging her eye, because they'd tell her former classmates about the new security risk. Because all of Cheliacs would unite against her in hating her and hurting her as much as they could short of killing her. Apparently the part where, by default, security doesn't tell anyone anything, takes higher precedence. Also, she is now visibly useful to the project, and that casts a different shade on the whole thing, where she knows how she wishes this would go, but to make security go along with it, she needs to have something to offer security, something to bargain with security, something that Nevis wouldn't require her to just hand over anyways. She also has to choose how to answer the expectant looks. Now, even if it's silence, she has to make it clearly deliberate. Ione thinks of something she can offer security and picks her strategy to try with the other girls because she doesn't want to spend the rest of her life with Keltham's other women being as cruel to her as won't kill her whenever Keltham isn't looking. So I'm not really sure, Ione says using the glorious feeling of realizing her curse's real power to fuel a smile. But I think Asmodeus cut a deal with Nethys to go in on Keltham's project together, and I was the person here who was best suited to get the power from Nethys to summon temporary copies of books from other libraries, plus whatever else it is I can do now. Didn't do it on purpose, just happened to me. There is an astonished silence, but she's not dead which says that they're not supposed to kill her, which is something. Security, says Paxty after a few seconds, I'm obliged to report evidence of forbidden primary worship even if I think you have it already. This makes everyone else tense nervously because they didn't say that, but now obviously it's too late. Security is most visibly at the window, making sure the dead bird is just a dead bird. You should walk to the forbidden's boundary and back, Merrixel says to prove you're still loyal to hell. The Forbiddens won't hurt you if you are. Or they could just tell me to fail a will save and read my mind. Also, Forbiddens goes by alignment, not loyalty to Asmodeus. And I wouldn't be here if they weren't sure about lawful evil. But sure, if an expert says that getting touched by Nethys didn't change my alignment for Forbiddens purposes, I'll walk out and walk back if the actual security here tells me I should. Ione thinks, loudly, about her offer to security, if they don't shoot her down on this. Keltham's going to want a book on cleric spells at some point, she's guessing, and if they make up their own version of a book, or remove a few pages, and hide it in this library, Ione can summon a copy of that to give to Keltham. Nethys, she thinks, wouldn't want her to withhold help from Keltham's project, so she knows she doesn't have her help to bargain with. She knows she has to give it anyways. But the version of this, where she's actively cooperating with security, giving them helpful suggestions like that, and going along with Cheliax's masquerades, if she's doing all that, 
She wants to be treated more like Nethys's oracle that got sent here by Pact with Asmodeus to help with Cheliax's project, which is probably what she really is, and not be treated like a heretic and traitor she never asked to become or wanted to be. Elias Abarco pulls off his invisibility, looking greatly annoyed. He's mostly annoyed because Ioni doesn't seem to care about anybody. They spent the last couple hours checking up on familial and non-familial relations they could murder or nearly murder to make a point. And her parents sold her to the school, and she has an older brother who by all accounts hates her, and she hates him back. This is healthy and encouraged in young wizards, but it's damn inconvenient when one is irritated with Ione Sala and really wants to rip something she cares about to pieces before her eyes. He nods to Paxti because she was right and should know it. She's still lawful evil, he says curtly. Paxti, you should hit the rest of them for being slow in reporting. Do you know the spell? Yes. And he looks at Ione, raises his eyebrows slightly, nods even more slightly than that, and heads off to see why the damn bird is taking them so long, because it turns out that supervising a bunch of God-touched teenagers is the worst. Ione does not think thank you, obviously. There are so few occasions in Cheliacs where it's ever appropriate to say that. She's surprised sometimes the word hasn't died out. Deal, is what she thinks back, along with her very lawful and Asmodean intention to keep her deals fully if the other party keeps theirs. Paxty is not actually delighted by this assignment at all. Not that this shows on her face. They're very much playing an iterated game here, and that means that hitting people too hard is risky, and hitting people too lightly is risky. And while no one's outright glaring at her, several of them look a bit contemptuous, even though she got this right and they got this wrong. The contemptuousness is a sign she should err on the side of too hard. Carissa would kind of like for less of her mental energy to be caught up in imagining there is an invisible halfling from a Tolman's here ready to kill someone. It's really cramping her style. But there is a halfling, or at least there might be, unless Asmodeus told Aspexia Rugatoni to do something different, which is not less terrifying, and so she doesn't want to particularly confront Ione, even though she has some good material for it, or even ask Ione for a book, which is what she'd do if there were slightly less at stake here, because it seems likely that Nethys's intervention here is part of what Otolmans is objecting to. Paxti's spell slaps her, harder than people usually bother with. Carissa wishes there were a way for Paxti to know that she's not just affecting being so absorbed in more important matters that she barely noticed. She actually is so absorbed in more important matters than she barely noticed, but there's not. I never worshipped Nethys, Ione says while this is going on. I never deliberately read anything about any gods that weren't Asmodeus. I passed my loyalty checks. You report it because it's evidence. But while you're doing that, have your own sense about what must have actually happened. Nethys has an obvious interest in working with Asmodeus on this, and I doubt there are any actual Nethys worshippers on site or who'd be allowed in. I was just the one there who liked books. Then Ione realizes what she has to say, and it also works for her own benefit that she says it. Note, though, Keltham thinks I'm a secret Nethys worshipper, and I've told him that probably most of you and most Chelish government officials wouldn't care, but that I wasn't sure. Security thinks that, once Keltham learns the spells to verify that I'm Nethys-touched, 
I can be a secret worshiper of Nethys here who confirms our stories to him. So don't treat me as anything except somebody with a weird book-fetching power. Anywhere Keltham might see that. You are not supposed to know anything about me other than that. And even if you did, Keltham doesn't think that worshipping Nethys is something that'd get most people after me. It's a security advisory. It's clearly a correct security advisory. And if Ione gives it before anybody else does, it means Ione is somebody who sometimes says what the security advisories are. Which, obviously, she absolutely will never abuse for anything. Chelish security would not, in fact, like. She is a very good and cooperative oracle of Nethys. She is only securing her own safety among the lesser mortals who aren't security. The lesser mortals who aren't security take the meaning and look variously impressed, or annoyed, or unreadable. Can you get destroyed books? says Meritzel after a moment. Can you get books out of Abadar's vault? No, it seems pretty power-balanced so far, Ione says, hardly even thinking about the learned reflex that halts her instinct to start spilling the exact details of what she can do at least at the current circle equivalent of whatever it is. Huh. Well, if you go mad, I'll try to put you down while there's still something for hell to salvage. And she heads off to dinner. Carissa wonders absently what Meritzel would do if instructed by Asmodeus himself to learn to be more evil. Ione will go back to her usual quiet self, unless people ask her more questions or actively talk to her, while she goes on trying to rethink her life. She clearly can't continue playing her game of being the quiet one and never attracting attention. But that was just a game, so it shouldn't be too hard for her to figure out a different one. She could have levered her higher grades into a position of more dominance in the classroom. She could have played riskier games and ended up closer to the top. She just deliberately decided it wasn't worth the risk, before. And now she doesn't have that option anymore. Being the quiet one was just a game move, right? Elias shoes the other kids out to dinner after a few more minutes of them playing stupid teenager social games, so he can have another word with Ione. You should strip, he says, once they've left. I am considering lighting you on fire and it'd be inconvenient to replace your clothes. Ione Sala takes off her clothes immediately, without protest, old reflexes of fear overwhelming her and making it hard to think much further. She manages not to tremble too much about it, I am noticing a pattern, Elias says. The pattern is you decide that actually fucking submitting to the will of Asmodeus and promptly doing whatever he wants would be inconvenient for you personally, maybe get you killed. So instead, you try to sell your obedience to which we are already entitled in bits and chunks for things you want. Do you see how I might have observed this pattern? Nethys has a grip on my soul now. I can feel it. And it doesn't matter whether or not I object to Asmodeus making that deal. But... You wouldn't let Nethys keep up his end of whatever this is unless I made it hard for you to sweep me out of the way, which I know I have to do because otherwise Nethys will break me, and I wouldn't be surprised if Asmodeus predicted that when he gave me to Nethys because he also knew that security would try to... Elias does light her on fire at that point just because the sentence runs on so long. He doesn't maintain the spell for longer than its natural one round, though. He regrettably actually should not kill her. I'm not a theologian, he says, but I'm slightly less stupid than you, and my read is Asmodeus gave you to Nethys because Keltham's going to demand corroboration from other churches, which you can provide. And had security reached that conclusion, 
when you turned yourself in promptly like you should have, then we wouldn't have killed you or would have raised you if we didn't think of it in time. If it serves Asmodeus for you to live, then you don't have to fight like a Rabid Seagull to give us reason to keep you breathing, because the incentives were already there. If it serves Asmodeus for you to die, then none of these games will work. And if you're unpredictable enough, then at some point, it will serve us for you to die simply because corpses don't make sudden moves that wreck half a dozen planes they don't know about. Stop it. No more games, no more deals. This is about as painful as the most painful punishment she's been through. Don't care if I die, she coughs out when she can speak. She doesn't try to stop the trembles, the sobs that interrupt her, but she knows that this is probably the most important negotiation of her life, so she should spend everything she has on continuing it. Belong to, Nethys. Have to work, for him. I served Asmodeus from fear, because he would get my soul. And you know that's good enough. For Lord Asmodeus. But it's not true or anymore. Don't tell me what Asmodeus wants. That's your side. Mine is. What Nethys wants. So, I want to make a deal. Asmodean. And then, I'll be predictable. Sure, here's your deal. Stop fucking with me. You live, you stay in your library, you get the books we tell you to get, you study magic very diligently and impress Nethys, he likes high-circle casters, and you never again screw us over for the sake of your bargaining position. Or I'll see to it you never hit third circle, and I don't think Nethys cares at all about people who have barely started studying magic. Lots of people don't hit third. Keltum won't be suspicious. If you don't give me an easier way to do it, I will do it by making you stupider, and I know how Nethys would feel about you then. Got it? There's a flare of hate in her then, now that she won't go to hell for hating Asmodeus's servants. And with that hate, flashes of contempt, starting to arrange themselves around her sudden new identity. She is too scared, too shaking from being on fire for a minute, and too angry, not to think the thoughts that she is thinking now. You can make Asmodeans into high-level wizards, if you give them enough intelligence boosts but you can't make them think. She's not particularly happy about having thought that. She doesn't actually want to insult the person in front of her if he's reading her mind, but the thought came to her anyways. The security wizard hasn't realized that this entire conversation has been predicted out by Nethys and Asmodeus. He isn't curious about the divine. He isn't keeping his eyes open, and because of that, he doesn't see. He's posturing about serving Asmodeus, and not realizing how this whole interaction they're having right now is something that Asmodeus no doubt had to work around and pay Nethys extra for in order to get a library oracle on his project. She hopes somebody in hell has a very, very long talk with him about that after he dies. Nethys has really gone to some lengths, in ways very visible to her, to make sure that Nethys can seriously threaten her and Chelish security can't. She can't be maledicted, she can't be tortured for very long. If she's killed in the course of sincerely doing her duties, that thought doesn't actually bother her at all if she gets to go to Nethys's afterlife and study magic forever instead of burning. And maybe Cheliax wouldn't dare kill her anyways, because if she can't be maledicted, somebody else might raise her, and she'd talk all about Keltham. Ioni Sala doesn't know what Nethys has set up against somebody cursing her stupider, but maybe it'll be too obvious to Keltham by then. Or she can pray to Nethys for divine aid, 
or she could simply go to Keltham and tell him it's time to find a university who can heal her better. Or maybe the higher-ups here are aware that cursing Nethys's oracle with stupidity would in fact constitute a serious slap in the face of a god, one who's very hard to keep out of things, on a site already subjected to extensive divine intervention, and she is too scared, too shaking, and too angry not to think what she thinks then. That's not how compacts work, Asmodean. They're negotiated, not dictated. Nethys made very sure you wouldn't be able to escalate your threats against me to worse than what Nethys could do. Maybe you should call in a more experienced security officer. Who knows how to negotiate with non-Asmodeans? You can't just maledict. Someone who understands what happens if you leave people scared of being set on fire and stupidified, and your negotiating position does not, in fact, let you just keep escalating further until you send them to hell. Non-Asmodeans stay on the lookout for ways to improve their bargaining positions. If they're scared, and you haven't made a real deal with them, that's what happens. I wasn't ambitious, and I'm still not ambitious, and I don't want really very much at all. If you negotiated terms with me, I'd be very predictable, and wouldn't even ask for very much. But if Asmodeus's representative wants Nethys's representative to be predictable, he needs to bargain for that and not just dictate. I understand. Ione whispers out loud, meekly. He's either reading her thoughts like a halfway intelligent person, or he's not. She'll see. You got your deal, and I don't notice you being reasonable and predictable at all. I didn't understand that. She genuinely didn't. Is he saying he read her thoughts, or does he think they've already done a deal, or she doesn't get it? Sure, he'll speak more slowly. When Nethys chose you, you could have come to us. You went to Keltham instead to try to position yourself better for a deal. We granted you that you would continue attending class with your little friends. When you realized you had book summoning powers, you could have come to us. You showed them to Keltham instead to try to make it more inconvenient to replace you. Then you proposed your deal. That we don't set the other students against you. That despite all your behavior in the past two days, we treat you like an Asmodean student and encourage them in the same. I agreed to that too. And then I told you, don't do that again. You want to stay here? Falsely admired by your peers, trusted by Keltham? Great, that has been agreed to, you have that. But if you push us any farther, we will take you out of the picture. The deal is that there will not be further deals. I don't know why you think Asmodeus bargained for Nethys' intervention here. The Grand High Priestess said nothing of that when she came to read your mind, and she pays a great deal of attention to the question of how we accidentally make ourselves more costly for Asmodeus to steer. I think Nethys paid Asmodeus for whatever he's doing, and if it costs Nethys more, that serves my god. That's what I think. If you are a small, obedient little girl who only wants a few small things, then, having attained those small things, I don't see why you'd hesitate to agree that you'll stop withholding things from us, stop presenting them to Keltham first, to try to force a concession from us afterwards, and stop trying to condition your obedience on our further concessions. The game you have played twice today you will not be able to play a third time. Have I said it enough ways you comprehend it now? The Grand High Priestess was, Don't think things that make your bargaining position look worse. Think things that make your bargaining position look better. The Grand High Priestess was here and didn't do anything to her. That says a lot, really. Nethys probably prepared in ways she can't even see. Ione draws a shaky breath and sits up straighter. 
are we negotiating a deal? Or is Asmodeus's representative telling Nethus's representative how it's going to be? Let's hear what the small obedient girl who only wants a few small things still wants. Ione crawls over to where she left her clothes and puts them back on, which is helpful for her to get some of her sudden seething hatred under control. Whatever else comes, she's never passing a chelish loyalty screen again, and she may as well think what she fucking wants now, which really leaves quite a lot of thoughts backed up. And this is not the time for them. Oracle of Nethys, Ione Sala, of the library's curse, she says, when her clothes are back on and she's sitting on the ground. My god has either joined with your god or been paid by him to assist on a project to bring another plane's knowledge to Cheliax. I require a bed either in the library or in a room immediately adjacent to it. Aside from this, I am content with ordinary student-level sustenance and living conditions, which you will not worsen or withhold. You may either leave the other students here ignorant about my true nature, or tell them, but then instruct them further not to mistreat me in any way whatsoever, whether or not Keltham is watching. I understand there may be some restrictions on me. These restrictions need to mostly not prevent me from providing the services that Nethys intended me to offer this project. Whatever pay or equity is negotiated by Keltham for the participants in his project will be allowed to actually accrue to me, if it actually accrues to any single one of the other girls, and Sheliax can't take it from me, including by unexpected fees or cost increases. You don't do anything clever to work around all that and make my life worse. In exchange, I will cooperate with Chelish Security, on the understanding that they treat me as a friendly representative of the allied god Nethys, and not an Asmodean traitor who gets set on fire at somebody's whim. If we have disagreements, we work them out by negotiating as equals, not by a wizard who works for Cheliax showing up and gouging out my eye. If at some point you come up with something extra that you want from me, don't threaten me into it. Offer me an interesting book, or a magic item. Or if you want me to do almost anything, you can offer me my brother as my slave. Apart from that, I don't think I have any long-term goals besides pleasing Nethys enough to get a good Nethysian afterlife. I'm not impatient to reach Ninth Circle here instead of there. If you manage to come up with a brilliant way to screw me on this deal, it's off. Because I'm not an Asmodean, and you're not a devil, and this isn't a contract between two Asmodeans. It's a Nethysian-Asmodean deal. I'm lawful, and I'll keep my deals that are actually sensible deals, for sensible people, being sensible about them. I'm not an Asmodean anymore, and I won't keep a contract that an Asmodean twisted around. What makes Ione Sala predictable is when she thinks she can be safe if she stays predictable, which mostly means that she needs to be safe from Nethys's displeasure. The main thing that causes me to start looking for ways to improve my bargaining position with Cheliax is if it looks to me like Cheliax might suddenly decide to do anything it wants to me at any time, especially things that might hinder my service to my god, unless my bargaining position is better. I will remember your claim that security would have worked with me if I'd come directly to them, and if you keep your side of things, I will try coming straight to you at least the next time I think I see something Nethys would want me to do. I hear your claim that my doing anything else unpredictable makes me too much of a liability, and I will be killed no matter what after that.
which I understand would make it hard to continue doing what Nethys wants me to do. And I understand Nethys would see that as a betrayal if I let it happen on purpose. Our gods have an obvious common interest. We don't have to fight. I respect what Asmodeus has to offer this project. I hope Cheliax respects what Nethys has to offer. Ioni finishes talking. She's trying to tense her entire body so it will stop fucking trembling. And she knows she can't do this for much longer. Oh, do you want your brother after all, says Elias with some satisfaction. I spent a while trying to see if there was anyone in the world you liked. All right. Next time you have a bright idea, come to us. Next time we have a demand, I'll bribe you. Ioni found a wounded bird when she was very young. She hid it from her parents and tried to nurse it back to health. She hadn't even had it a full day before her brother found it and killed it in front of her, slowly, by tearing off bits of it at a time. It's the last instance Ioni can recall of still having a heart to break because afterwards it was very clear to her that anything she ever cared for would just become a weapon that somebody else could use to hurt her. Is it too late to pretend that I love my brother dearly? Ioni says, not quite believing that she's joking with him. And deal. He pulls together an arcane healing spell, fixes the burns when he shakes her hand. If you love that asshole, I really would have to conclude Nethys had driven you mad. Stay out of trouble. Yes, sir, Ioni says without thinking at all, and then sighs at herself, but only internally. Halfling Slave Hash 958245 Broom has just seen a trembling human girl strip naked and then be set screaming on fire, which challenged his understanding of reality, not in the slightest. After that, other things were said which challenged his understanding of reality significantly more. Did the girl just win? That is frankly not where he was expecting this to go. He wouldn't set somebody on fire if they were implicated in the possible end of the world. They might explode. Broom thought about trying to do something, but before he was done hesitating, the girl wasn't on fire anymore, and then she was still talking disrespectfully to the powerful wizard who had just set her on fire. That does seem like the sort of person who might destroy the world, either by accident or on purpose. The conversation afterwards didn't make it seem like Ioni Sala was planning to do that right away, but Broom is still feeling somewhat worried. He can imagine somebody carrying the sort of grudge from being set on fire where they decide to destroy the world about it, especially if it's been happening to them regularly. He doesn't like being whipped and healed and whipped again. He hated that one time of his life where it was happening to him a lot. He just didn't have any options for doing anything about that, such as, for example, destroying the world. It is not entirely clear to Broom that Chelish security quite understands how to avoid making giant messes or how to clean them up, which, he supposes, makes sense of why some god named Otolmans would randomly grab Broom in the hallway and tell him to do it. And yet despite that, Broom finds himself smiling. Well, he thinks he knows why he's doing that. She did win, after all. Broom wipes the smile from his face once he realizes why it's there. He watches Ioni pull a book out of air, visibly trembling, and sit down to read the book, while she continues trembling, looking very much like she's trying to avoid having a breakdown in front of any invisible watchers. He keeps watching until he's pretty sure she's not about to grab her wizard stuff and start destroying the world, and then leaves the library to check on his other person of interest. Carissa ducks out from the crowd, headed to dinner, and goes to her room. 
She's pretty sure she can fake her way through a date with Keltham, but she doesn't want to. She can come up with several justifications, and she's not sure she buys any of them, but one is that when they tell him more, which they're going to have to eventually, she'd like to tell him that she wasn't lying about this. Another one is that she is trying to become bigger, more capable, more evil in the sense of wanting evil things for her own reasons, rather than the sense of being willing to do what it takes to survive, and so it seems like practice in the wrong direction, to go on a date while not wanting to. Another one is that at lunchtime she was so happy, full of ideas and satisfaction and cleverness and the conviction that there was something big and beautiful and perfect out there, and Keltham was leading her towards it. And she wants that back. She doesn't, objectively speaking, have any reason to have lost it. She has basically earned confirmation that she was right, that there is something big and beautiful and perfect out there, and that Keltham is leading her towards it, her and not anybody else, or at least her first. She didn't have the details nailed down, but if you'd asked her to bet at lunchtime, she wouldn't have bet she had the details right already. The main reason she now feels sick and small and scared isn't that she was wrong at lunchtime, it's that she realized since then that the path to big and beautiful and perfect requires skills she doesn't have and doesn't have long to acquire. Not a useful line of thought? Why does she want to go on a date with Keltham? Other than because there's a competition with that as a win condition and she's very competitive. Other than because if they have children, they'll be very smart and Cheliacs will objectively owe her lots of money for them, whether or not it pays up. Other than because he's attractive, when he's trying to be that instead of trying to be a hundred other things, well, because there's something he is getting right. There is something no one in Cheliacs is getting right except maybe Aspexia Rugaton, and Aspexia Rugaton can't teach it, even if she knows it, because if she could, then everything would be different. There's a kind of way of living in the world that Keltham has, and they don't, and he saw immediately what a tragedy that was and wanted to teach it to literally everyone because, not because he's good, he's not, he's a lot more good than people here because his surroundings were, but she can actually tell the difference and he's not. But you don't have to be good to see a mess, a lawless mess if you'd like, and to wish that the beings in it stood taller, smarter, clarified, and free, not as good as when they had no free will, maybe, but at least out of the local equilibrium, where they have it but are not competent to use it. He's also a teenager in way over his head and missing half the information he needs, and depending which skills he grows in which order he's very possibly going to demand, when Cheliax comes clean with him, that everyone involved in the decision to deceive him be tortured to death, which would be reasonable, but... She wants to sleep with Keltham because she wants everything he has, and she wants to see more pieces of him, and she wants it very, very badly. And she sits with that and lets it fill her up, the longing to see the end of the path, the longing to tell him things and watch him think about them, to check the little Keltham she is building in her head against the real thing and see if she gets it. Yet. There. That's better. She goes to dinner. Keltham heads to dinner, still feeling shaky. It does not occur to him to hide this. 
he is distracted, and by default he is not an actor posing. He grabs his food and sits down next to Carissa, who seems to have gotten there before him, not sure what he wants to say to her. Cancel the date? There's a presumption there about Carissa wanting to date him only under narrow conditions that have not actually been specified. Hey, says Keltham. Hey! Noticing that something is troubling Keltham is well within Carissa's baseline perceptiveness about things that might determine whether she lives or dies even when she is extremely distracted. You okay? Nope, Keltham says, because in Dathilan there are no pleasantries that you are meant to respond to with lies, and if there were, the people there would revolt against their language and start over. What does your own model of reality say that Owl's wisdom is predicted to do to somebody? Some adventurers use it pretty much daily, so it can't have, like, particularly noticeable long-term effects from regular use. Clerics tend to get its equivalent in a headband, like wizards get headbands for cunning, and it makes them better servants of their god. I have heard of people saying it gave them a profound religious experience. From the look on Keltham's face, that's not quite it, but closer— it sort of is a religious experience, in a way, touching the state of being a little more like a god. Yes, being a little more like a god. You know somebody asked in class, what makes someone have the potential to become a keeper? It's that. It's the thing Owl's wisdom boosts. Taldane doesn't actually have a word that means cognitive reflectivity. If you don't have people screaming about that, and giant warning labels on the spell— then maybe my first angry thought afterwards was right, and yes, in fact, almost nobody here has much inside them that actually draws on the thing that Owl's wisdom boosts, so nothing much happens to y'all when you use it. Uh, oh, gods, I'm sorry. No, I've never heard of anything that'd make people warn. There are people with 22 wisdom, and they're not even close to keepers. They don't have the rest. But I guess if you stuck a headband on, you would be. It's not your fault but I realized how I was put together, in a way that probably, no, let's be frank, in a way that can't possibly make sense, and then it wore off, and now I'm not smart enough to fix what I remember seeing, and I'm not even sure that's what I want to do. Ha, my brain's totally thinking that this may not be a bad thing in the long run, and it sure wouldn't have been thinking that an hour ago. She thinks she understands, though, and it sounds like a very bad thing if you don't have time to put yourself back together afterwards. Not a bad thing, she murmurs rather than think of something she can actually say. That which can be destroyed by the truth should be. It's a proverb that's remembered as much for how it's false as for how it's true, because among the things that truths can destroy is people. There's a whole philosophy around that saying. One of the key points is that maybe sometimes it makes sense to not push a truth on others if you think it'll hurt them. It can make sense to not walk up to keepers and ask them to tell you everything you're not seeing. But if you saw it yourself, it's too late. You can't unsee it. And there's no way out but forwards. So, plus side, the way I was put together was not too bad for Dathilan, and almost certainly all wrong for Galarian. And being stuck like that while refusing to look at exactly what I was doing wrong probably wouldn't have turned out great for me. On the minus side, before the owl's wisdom wore off, my brain went and fully admitted to itself that I had no hope of ever succeeding in my life goals back in Dathilan, and I did not really need that much personality update being shoved at me all at the same time, you know, 
it would have been nicer to spread it out over a few more weeks. So that's what my day was like. How was your day? What a question. I had an existential crisis, but it was much more minor than that. Then I met a person even more important than Contessa Lorelatha, who was already lots more important than anyone I intended to ever meet, and she was perfectly nice, but I still feel vaguely like a toddler wandering around a live-fire military training exercise, going, Wow, such bright lights. Then, shrug, the duck's tasty. Your food technology is maybe something like 300 years behind ours. I don't even know, but I admit it's surprisingly good duck given that. My brain is still trying to question all of its life choices, and that includes the degree to which I'm prioritizing certain forms of personal happiness while working on my very important project. I don't... I'm not sure if I can be the Keltham I was at lunchtime. Tonight. The Keltham who's just running straight ahead and doing the thing, because that has different results in Dothilan than in Galarian, and I saw that, but I also don't know yet what other kind of person I can possibly be. I don't know how much you wanted that Keltham you saw before, instead of a more unsettled one. I could also just find my brain shaking out if you gave it another hour, or starting undressing me. I genuinely don't know. I've never been hit by an owl's wisdom before. If I had been, this case wouldn't have had such an effect. So, not in the mood for winning a kinkiness competition? Maybe in the mood to climb up to the rooftop and stare at the stars and worry about the fate of the world being on our shoulders? He feels a flash of the old Keltham's enthusiasm at that, something that he instinctively cups his hands around, like he's protecting a flame from the wind. Sounds nice. Could do it wearing fewer clothes, too, if you were also in the mood for that. If it escalates on both sides into a perversion competition, I sure won't complain. I'll also understand if even a relatively minor existential crisis turned out to be a pretty large one in an absolute sense, and you just want to stare at the stars. Also, what's an existential crisis? It doesn't actually translate. Oh, it's the thing where you think too much about some question humans aren't good at thinking about, or at least some question no one has taught Galarian humans to be good at thinking about. Like what you're for, or who you want to be, or what death will be like, and end up having the mental equivalent of the thing where you bite your lip and then have to avoid, every time you swallow, biting that exact spot again while it's swollen. I'll pick out an outfit for stargazing, and we'll see where it takes us. How about that? Works for me. You know, the way people think in Dathilan, which probably isn't how they should think here, it's the conventional wisdom that when you can see what you're trying not to think, and it's gotten to anywhere near the point of a bitten lip you're trying not to bite again, you're supposed to just go ahead and think it. This probably assumes there's no rogue corn strains that eat you if you think about them, and also that you know how to think about such things and can think about them productively, and also that you know people older and more experienced and four. Intelligence points smarter than you, who you can ask for help if you get in trouble, and that you can call in a keeper if that doesn't work. I think in Golarion, people trying really hard to think the thoughts they're at the edges of would just end up going mad or, you know not functional enough to do their job, at which point they starve. What does Dathilan do about it if you are busy having an existential crisis and can't do your job for a month? Does everyone just have a month of savings? That doesn't sound like something that badly configured thoughts are supposed to do to a person. You'd call in a keeper before then. What you're for, who you want to be, 
and what the future makes of you after they bring you back from the dead. I wouldn't have thought those were dangerous things to think about either. To be clear, I am not at all under the impression that one means you could tell me your problems, and I'd see non-dangerous things to think about them. I've been in Galarian for longer than an hour at this point. Somebody my age is supposed to save at least a year's expenses in investments. More if they don't have a support network, or the investments are very volatile. I was at eighteen months of runway when I boarded my fateful airplane, but a lot of it was in some pretty volatile investments. Wizards are that rich. Most people, if they unexpectedly can't earn any money for a year, die. Because they can't cut their expenses below what they are to save up more of their income without dying. Or because they're intelligence ten, and they can't. Imagine multiple possible futures and plan for them. Mostly the second thing, but also it wouldn't obviously be worth it for them to cut their expenses more. Cutting their expenses more would increase their odds of dying of other things, like living in a worse apartment makes you catch malaria and cholera and so on more often, and if you eat worse food, then you're weaker and can't fight off illness as well. And also, living on the bare minimum is kind of miserable, and one might reasonably trade off some misery against some chance of dying sooner if they don't think the misery is the useful kind that you learn from and makes you stronger. Right, afterlives. There's no point staying on Galarian if you're not having any fun there. Yeah, I mean, some of the afterlives suck, but chelish people at least can be pretty sure of their draw. And if you're done here, not a lot of point hanging around. Keltham can feel it like an echo of Owl's wisdom, his explicit awareness, his inability not to look in that direction, towards his perception that everything he's heard about the afterlife has been very vague, and the explicit thought now completed that this is probably not some random innocent mistake. It's okay to ignore while he plunges ahead into everything else that's more tractable. He wishes he knew whether or not the truth about afterlives was being deliberately hidden from him by the people here or hidden by gods from living non-gods in this afterlife-feeding economy, or if this is some safer issue where it'd work fine to try harder to pin people down on details at the expense of some social capital. He doesn't want to pin Carissa down on it anyways. It's not a fun predate topic. Sorry if I shouldn't ask, by the way. But I can't tell if your mention of meeting somebody more important than Contessa Luralatha was a prompt to ask you about that if I was interested, or if it was deliberately vague to signal that I'm not supposed to ask. Mostly just vague, because the name wouldn't mean anything to you. I met the Grand High Priestess Aspexia Rugaton, the head of the Church of Asmodeus on Galarian. She was laying the forbiddens. Meta, before I say anything work-related about that, what's the local defaults and your personal overrides for how much work you want to talk about on the dinner before a date? Dathilani default is that if you met somebody over work, Work is assumed good to discuss while together, unless somebody says otherwise. I haven't noticed a personal override over that myself. Doth Ilan does so much reasoning out which things you do instead of just reading people and noticing if you're getting your desired result. It seems like it'd be awfully hard not to talk about work, considering, she says. I don't mind it. Right, so say anything to Aspexia Rugaton about work? I mean, if I'd been there, I'd have asked her what we need to do to get intelligence headbands and a pair of detect magic goggles, but there's presumably a reason she didn't deliberately give me a chance to do that, and I'll understand if you didn't want to expend your personal social capital on that. I did ask for a headband. That was not what she was here to talk about. I don't think they are underrating how important you are, at least. 
To Keltham, that doesn't sound the least bit unlike what happens if a legislator is passing through and didn't schedule time for your personal pet issue. That's what the whole hierarchy of delegates, electors, and representatives are for. Yeah, not surprising. Even the second part is more cheering than I was expecting. Maybe not tonight. Maybe more like early tomorrow. But I do want to talk to someone about milestones, prices, what they're interested in seeing to create the promise that implies more investment as a correct course of action. What it takes to get resources like magic goggles and at least one intelligence headband and wisdom headband to pass around. Or failing that, if there's enough other clerics here who can go in with me on second circle cleric spells, for purposes of hitting everyone who wants it with an owl's wisdom at least once before they get their head stuffed full of Dath Ilani skills. Seems like a good conversation to have. Carissa is almost certain the constraint on headbands is whether Keltham's going to destroy the world, not whether if he doesn't he'll create enough value, but probably whoever he goes to for the conversation will have figured out what to tell him. And she wants a headband very badly, so hopefully it'll even work out. Know my next step on who to ask about it? Like, not necessarily who's in charge, if you don't know, just who I ask to find out where to go? Other people have this weird ability to find security officers that I don't actually see myself anywhere. I just step into hallways and call security and let them show themselves. Er, right then. You would expect this to be a comedy trope on a TV show, which otherwise lacked a mechanical explanation, not the way that things worked in real life. Is that a very undothilon way for things to work? Oh, well. I know that if we could actually go to Dothilan, things would immediately start happening at a thousand times the already terrifying speed they're presently happening, but I sort of wish I could wander around Dothilan not causing an international incident and just seeing what it's like. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.